welcome back to Costume Drama Rewind with your hosts, Megan Jutt and Laura Skog. This week, we're commemorating Labor Day with the 1992 film Newsies. It was directed by Kenny Ortega and stars Christian Bale, David Moscow, Bill Pullman, Robert Duvall, Luke Edwards, and Anne Margaret. It's New York City in 1899, and David Jacobs and his kid brother Les, played by David Moscow and Luke Edwards, respectively, are initiated into the world of newspaper boys, aka newsies, who are responsible for selling newspapers on the streets for the likes of Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst. They quickly meet one of the top newsies, Jack Kelly, aka Christian Bale, who teaches them the ropes of manipulating customer sympathy and creating sensational headlines in order to sell more papers, as well as not getting cheated by the newspaper employees who charge them for each paper they sell without buying back unsold copies and who inflict physical abuse regularly. Jack meets the rest of the Jacobs family, including their dad, whose injury and subsequent firing from his factory job has forced the kids to drop out of school to find work, and their sister Sarah, who Jack develops a crush on. He lies to the siblings, saying that his parents are out west looking for a ranch to buy in Santa Fe, and that once they do, they'll send for him to join them. In reality, his mom's dead, his dad's in prison, and it's revealed that Jack has escaped from juvenile detention, having been stuck there for stealing food. After the newspaper barons increase the wholesale charge for newsies in order to increase their own profits, Jack and David take inspiration from recent trolley strikes. They declare the creation of a newsies union, and they call for their own strike. They work with newsies from all over the different boroughs, including Brooklyn, and they create enough pressure that Pulitzer looks to take them down. Meanwhile, a sympathetic journalist named Denton and a vaudeville star, Meta, promote the boys' cause. Pulitzer teams up with the juvenile detention center, Warden, to lock up Jack again to stop the union. First, they give him a bribe, and then they give him a threat to get him to stop the strike and join them. Initially, he takes them up on the offer after he learns about the threat, but he breaks with them when Pulitzer's employees try to rough up the Jacobs' kids. Jack rejoins the fight, and with Denton's and the rest of the Newsies' help, they create and distribute their own newspaper, which gets into the hands of Governor Teddy Roosevelt, who backs the boys. In a final rally scene, Jack and David wear down Pulitzer, who gives in to their demands. Jack is given the option to leave directly for Santa Fe, but he decides to become part of the Jacobs family, and then makes out with Sarah in front of everybody, and it all ends in song and dance. So is he now Sarah's brother, or is he her boyfriend? <laughs> this is... Who says he can't be both? <sighs> a few first impressions. As for many women of a certain age, this movie was part of my early and long-running crush on Christian Bale, but it's been quite a few years since I watched it, even though I listened to the stage musical pretty frequently. What kind of surprised me is that when I did rewatch it for this episode, I had tears running down my face for about the last 20 minutes. If you, like me, are a sentimentalist about the power of the people to affect change, this movie will move you and you should let it. A friend introduced this movie to me back in high school, and I've seen it a number of times. While looking back, it's definitely tailored to a younger audience, but the musical numbers are top-notch. Turn-of-the-century labor history isn't really my passion, but I think it's a good way to introduce kids to the topic by showing them what life would have been like for kids their own age back then. So let's get right down to the heart of the matter. There were thousands of newsboys on the streets of New York in the latter half of the 19th century, and they probably did a lot less dancing. Lame. They did, in fact, buy their papers wholesale at one half a cent each and sell them for a penny, so that their average daily profit was about 30 cents a day, or about $10 a day in 2020 purchasing power. Given that, many of them were chronically homeless. We see that at the beginning of the movie with a group of newsboys sleeping on the statue of newspaperman Horace Greeley, which is a heart-tugging little detail because Greeley himself was a passionate social reformer. 
1866, Charles Loring Brace, observing the plight of the newsboys, wrote, I remember one cold night seeing ten dozen or so of the little homeless creatures piled together to keep each other warm beneath the steps of the New York Sun office. There used to be a mass of them also at the Atlas office, sleeping in the lobbies until the printers drove them away by pouring water on them. One winter, an old burnt-out safe lay all the season in Wall Street, which was used as a bedroom by two boys. There were some social services available. At the beginning of the movie, you see a group of nuns feeding the newsboys, and the group lodging house that they wake up in was a real thing, but these young homeless boys were often mistrustful of anything that looked like authority, and in any case, the services that were available were pretty limited. All that to say, things weren't great. The Newsboys also struck in 1886, 1887, and 1889, but it was the 1899 strike, which was in fact driven by an increase in the wholesale price of 10 cents per 100 papers, that really got widespread attention. Strong leadership was definitely a part of this 1899 strike, but Jack Kelly is a Disney creation. Instead, the real leader was Kid Blink, who in the movie is the supporting character with the man bangs and an eye patch. Like Jack, he didn't really have much of an education, but he was a charismatic speaker. At a citywide rally attended by more than 5,000 people, he told the crowd, and the newspapers wrote this quote out using the Brooklyn accent he spoke with, Friends and fellow workers, this is a time which tries the hearts of men. This is the time when we's got to stick together like glue. We know what we want, and we'll get it even if we is blind. He was very effective, and so like many other effective agitators, efforts were soon underway to discredit him. The newspapers put out that he had accepted a bribe to sell boycotted papers, which gained some credence because he turned up in newer clothing than he'd been wearing before, and he was forced to step down from his leadership role. He later worked as a cart driver, a saloon keeper, and might have been a part of the mafia, dying of tuberculosis 14 years later at the age of 32. Just as we see in the film, there was a lot of internal dissension among the newsies about tactics, particularly in how aggressively they would treat strikebreakers or scabs. The real-life strike, however, also had some establishment support. Their major rally had members of the New York Assembly, as well as local businessmen and lawyers attending and speaking. The real muscle, though, came from driving a sharp drop in circulation. In just two weeks, Pulitzer's New York World went from selling 360,000 copies a day to just 125,000. In the end, the boys didn't win everything they wanted, but they extracted a major concession. While most papers kept the increased wholesale price, they also, for the first time, instituted buybacks of unsold papers, which meant that the newsboys didn't have to eat the cost of what they couldn't sell, which did help improve their lot in life somewhat. Moving on to the editorial side of the industry. During the movie, Denton, the journalist, mentions writing up San Juan Hill with Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders. This conflict was a part of the Spanish-American War, which has been called the first media war due to the use of news outlets hyperbolizing, sensationalizing, and even making up stories to sell papers. There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> and in fact, William Randolph Hearst basically started this war with his paper's calls for the U.S. intervening in Cuban-Spanish affairs after the American battleship The Maine was sunk, blaming the Spanish without solid proof. Anyway, Teddy Roosevelt, who became New York governor in 1898, also published his own account called The Rough Riders, the year the Newsies takes place. Pulitzer and Hearst may own the world, but they don't own us. I promised them no singing. Was that really singing? You have a point. There was no real tune. So a little bit about the two men who are the symbols of the system that the Newsies are fighting. Joseph Pulitzer was born into a fairly wealthy merchant family in Hungary, but his father dies when he's still a teenager, they lose all their money, and he emigrates to the United States in 1864 with his passage paid for by military recruiters. 
He serves for eight months in the Union Cavalry in a largely German-speaking regiment, since he doesn't really speak English at this point. After the war, he bounces around in a number of jobs, from whaling in New Bedford, which he apparently found pretty boring. After all that work we did, I feel betrayed. <laughs> ah. <laughs> to caring for mules in St. Louis. Fair enough. I guess he found that less boring. He gets his big break via a job recording deeds for the railroad. He studies law, gets into politics, and in 1878 buys the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, positioning the paper as the voice of the common man, while simultaneously crushing an effort by the paper staff to unionize. I think that's one of those irony things. But this starts his rise in the newspaper business that culminates with his ownership of the New York world and his verbal sparring match with Christian Bale and Christian Bale's neckerchief. <laughs> Meanwhile, his chief rival, William Randolph Hearst, has a much less interesting ride to the top. He's the son of a mining executive and U.S. senator from California, and the junior Hearst first takes over managing the San Francisco Examiner, which his father owns, and then decides that he'd quite like to own a newspaper himself, and buys the New York Journal, as one does. No big deal. Journalists during this era were also remembered for highlighting social ills in America, like child labor, unsafe working conditions, political scandals, and the like. Teddy Roosevelt called these journalists muckrakers in a speech, saying that while they did good work, they just didn't know when to stop their muckraking. Their work did help influence popular opinion, a famous example being Upton Sinclair's work of fiction, The Jungle, which grossed out everyone and led for calls for uh, less nasty <laughs> food processing protocols, shall we say? Another early example is Ida B. Wells, whose investigative journalism exposed lynchings and the evils of Jim Crow laws. So Denton, the journalist's work in highlighting the Newsies' strike, is reflective of what was actually going on then. Though I'm not sure most reporters could afford to take all those kids out to eat regularly and bail them out. Just like In the Heart of the Sea from last week, this movie was initially a commercial flop, and it was only after its release on VHS that's a thing people used to watch movies on, that it acquired cult hit status. It became a stage musical in 2011, featuring Broadway star Jeremy Jordan as Jack Kelly, got more than a thousand shows in New York, as well as a national tour. There are some differences. They tweak a few of the songs and also add a few new ones, including a great song when Spot Conlon and his boys show up called Brooklyn's Here. And that song, as the kids say, really slaps. What? I'm hip. Most importantly for the plot, the character of the scrappy news reporter who supports the Newsies and the character of Jack's love interest are rolled into one and given an extra complication. In the musical, Pulitzer has a daughter named Catherine, who is a cub reporter trying to prove herself, and she unwillingly falls for Jack while reporting on the strikes. In real life, Joseph Pulitzer did have a daughter named Catherine, but she died in 1884 of pneumonia at the age of just two. Meanwhile, Catherine Pulitzer in this show is inspired by female muckrakers like Nellie Bly, and she's a terrific character. She's snarky and quick-witted and more than a match for Jack Kelly. She also gets a great song of her own, Watch What Happens, which is an ode to both female ambition and the power that journalism can have, and which is a song that I listen to about once a week as my pump-up music. So now the big question. How many flat caps are we awarding the Newsies? I'm going with 3.5 flat caps. Granted, this is a Disney movie and a musical, and as such, we get a much more sanitized view of history than what was real, such as the streets being super tidy, the Jacobs apartment being suspiciously large and well-lit for a family of five, usually supported on one factory job, 
and nobody's actively dying from, say, lead poisoning. But it's a fun movie, and the songs are really good. It's funny that you mentioned The Streets, because this was the first time my husband had ever watched it, and he, while the boys are doing gymnastics in the streets, he asked me if they wouldn't have been cartwheeling through horse poop. And yes, they would have. And the details like that are pretty wooly. But overall, I think this movie is terrific. I don't know what movie-going audiences were thinking in 1992. The music is great. It will get stuck in your head for days. The choreography is in a class all by itself. And the story is fun, but meaningful, with some historical resonance and a good reflection of what my all-time favorite history teacher used to call the moods and values of the times. Our two leads are insanely charming with great chemistry. There are a lot of other great characters who have really distinct personalities who you want to root for. And overall, I am awarding Newsies 4.5 flat caps, which would be a full five if they would retroactively put Brooklyn's here in the movie. So finally, a few sundry other notes. The character Crutchy is both the comic relief and the emotional center of the movie. And when Andrew Keenan Bolger was cast to play him in the stage musical, he spent a lot of time researching to try to understand why Crutchy uses the crutch. He made the acting decision that he would have suffered paralysis in his leg from polio. Since the strike coincides with the first waves of polio hitting New York City, that seems like a pretty well-informed decision to me. A fun note about the costuming. According to IMDb, the dress that Sister Sarah wears to the Newsies rally at the Vaudeville Hall is actually from 1899, and because it was so delicate, the costume staff had to keep repairing little holes during filming. Somewhere, a curator is crying. (laughs) The name of the theater where this scene takes place in Union Square is also real, but the name had changed by the time they would have been there. So first, it was Irving Hall in 1860, and it was used as a multi-purpose venue. By the 1880s, it switched to being a German theater house, and by the 1890s, the name was Irving Place Theater. So Meta being a Swedish performer there, not quite the right country. By the late teens and the 20s, it was a Yiddish theater and a burlesque call, but it got demolished in the 80s. So for our typical review of actors that we might have seen before or might see again on this podcast, this is the first appearance for both Christian Bale and Robert Duvall, but I suspect they will be back. I also really want to talk about Spot Conlon, because Gabriel Damon, the actor who played him, also voiced Littlefoot in the classic historic film The Land Before Time. And since I learned that, all I can hear is Littlefoot talking about sharp teeth and tree stars in an Irish Brooklyn accent. And hopefully now that's all you'll be able to hear, too. But I don't think we're going to cover prehistoric films. But speaking of Brooklyn, it was originally its own city until 1898, when it became one of New York City's boroughs after several years of debate. There was a lot of resentment at the time about losing its independence. People even called it the Great Mistake. So the tension the boys faced going to meet Spot Conlon on his home turf checks out, though it doesn't really explain the random Irish teen skinny dipping in the river. Fun note, though, construction for the Brooklyn Bridge, which the boys do cross, started in the 1860s and wrapped up in the 1880s. And while rooftop bars and gardens became a thing for the elite in New York in the 1880s, it's highly unlikely that the Jacobs would be living in an apartment building nice enough to have what they show in the film. So my final fun and frivolous note is that in a 25th anniversary retrospective for the 1994 Little Women, which we promise we will get to, I will not accept anything else, (laughs) Trini Alvarado, who played Meg March, shared the delicious detail that between takes on the Little Women set, Christian Bale taught the girls a lot of the Newsies choreography. For any of the Little Women cast who may be listening to this, as you surely are, get at me because I would like pictures. To learn more about the working and living conditions that the Newsies experienced, Read Jacob Reese's book, How the Other Half Lives, from 1890, which includes photographs that he took. 
you can also visit the Tenement Museum in New York to see what the Jacobs apartment really would have looked like. So New York City is very much a character in the movie, and if you're interested in the history of place and how the city developed, the best book that I read during my quarantine summer was Edward Rutherford's New York, which traces the city's development from early 1600s through present day through the eyes of a few representative families at all levels of society. Rutherford is sort of the master of that very specific subgenre. He's done that for a number of other cities, including London, Paris, and randomly Salisbury, England. But the book is a really great read. Watching this time around, I was also reminded of another story that features turn-of-the-century New York, working-class boys, Teddy Roosevelt, and Grizzly Grizzly murder, The Alienist. Maybe we'll give this TV show a watch for the pod at some point, but we'll have to advise that younger listeners not tune in for that one. I possibly will not tune in for that one either. So for what's supposed to be a kid's movie, we certainly found a lot to talk about, and we're excited about our next episode, which will take us to austerity-era post-war Great Britain as we cover the Bletchley Circle. Thanks for listening to Costume Drama Rewind. (laughs) 